Well, good morning. Great to be with you all. Great morning already. Um, grateful for Carl Carty leading us in worship. And you heard from Paige, and we already heard a life story from Fran, and it's really been a, a, worship, a worshipful morning. Uh, the passage that Luke just read is a very interesting one. You know, we're in week three of our study in Ecclesiastes. And for those of you that are just catching up, let me uh, just introduce this series to you briefly by saying this is the wisdom of maybe the most successful man, humanly speaking, that the world could imagine. You know, he had political power, he had wealth, he had wisdom, he had everything at his disposal. This man we call uh, Solomon. Uh, He was the son of David, who was David represented the high point spiritually of Israel. Solomon represented the high point economically and politically and militarily of Israel's power. So Solomon was the king of Israel during the height of its power. And uh, he wrote three of the books of our Bible. Uh, We have his wisdom in the book of Proverbs. We have the book of Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. And we have this book, Ecclesiastes, which we believe, if not literally written by Solomon, was written by someone later on as they were compiling his wisdom. But this is his voice, clearly. This is his life story. You heard it today, him pursuing this life of pleasure. And so we've been walking through this book. I introduced it week one. Last week, Lloyd was here. He took us through the first chapter. And uh, it was a very cheery message. If you remember, for those of you that were here, there were three main ideas from the text last week. Number one, there's something wrong with everything. Number two, there's something always missing. And number three, we can't do anything to fix it. You know, it's unapologetically happy last week. And uh, Lloyd worked really hard on that message. For those of you that were here, you remember that. He's walking on a treadmill. And he's essentially saying, all of us kind of know those three truths deep down, that life is bitter and short and hard in some ways. And yeah, there's like bursts of joy and happiness from time to time and celebratory occasions. But when you read Solomon, you get the idea that even the most successful human being possible has to face the fact that life is brutal, life is short, life is hard. So what do we do with these tensions? And as Lloyd was teaching us, he reminded us all of us have ways of sort of um, diminishing the hard truth of those three realities. And it's just like walking on a treadmill. So we can pursue all kinds of different things to distract us from the pain, to sort of mute the pain, dull the pain. But we're working really hard. And at the end of the day, we're not making any progress. They're all pursuits on a treadmill. So we've given this series the byline, unmasking the good life. And you may be thinking, what's so bad about the good life? What's wrong about the good life? Well, depending on how you define it, the good life can be a trip on a treadmill. A lot of work, a lot of effort, pursuing something that you never quite get. One of the the favorite phrases of Solomon uh, throughout this book, in fact, you heard it in Luke's reading earlier today, is it's a chasing after the wind. You know, think about that imagery. It's like, just when you think you have what your heart desires, you know, you grasp it in your hands and then you open it up and it's just air. There's nothing there. It's a chasing the wind. And so this morning, we're going to focus on a category of things that I think is part of our culture. And by our culture, I don't just mean like the culture out there in the world. I mean like we are in this. We're swimming in this culture. I think it's part of our culture uh, to pursue pleasure, to pursue um, things that feel good to our five uh, literal senses so that we can 
mute the pain, dull the pain of a really hard existence. And so we're going to dive in this morning to the pursuit of pleasure and why it is that all of us even subconsciously get so caught up in this pursuit. I can't think, literally, I mean this without exaggeration, I cannot think of maybe a more important and relevant topic that we could talk about in our culture today. Because we are awash with things that feel good, awash with things that taste good, awash with things that are uh, pleasant to our senses. In fact, at the risk of embarrassing myself, let me just give you a glimpse of my day-to-day as I thought about it. Now, this is kind of a normal Sunday for me, but I was thinking about all the pleasures of life that I have, you know, little uh, simple pleasures. So this morning, I woke up with my head on on a feather pillow. Okay, pretty good, right? Uh, I had uh, room darkening shades on my windows because heaven forbid I wake up, you know, a minute earlier than I have to, right? Um, I had hot water for my shower. Now we take that for granted, but it's only been, I don't know, in very recent history that human beings could just expect to turn a little spigot and water comes out nice and warm right? Uh, I had coffee this morning. Now, I don't know who invented coffee, but, you know, we should give thanks to that person. And, uh, you know, don't judge me, but I put hazelnut creamer in my coffee, right? Now, who thought of that? That there's, you can extract some flavor from this nut and add it to this other thing called coffee and it, you know, deliciousness. Um, On my drive here, I listened to one of my favorite podcasts, And uh, just because the sound coming from my phone wasn't good enough, I connected it to my car speakers via Bluetooth, you know, and didn't think anything about it. How amazing is that? Uh, After church today, I'll eat some food for lunch. I don't know what I'm going to eat yet, but no doubt it'll be delicious because we, I have so many options. Why not eat food that's delicious? You know, hopefully a little healthy for me, but still tasting good. Uh, After lunch, if I... uh, uh, I hope to take a nap, you know, that I try to do that on Sundays. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. But if I do take a nap today, it will be on my four-layer memory foam mattress. All right, talk about comfort. Um, I don't know what we'll do for dinner, but I'm sure it'll be something delicious again. Uh, maybe we'll watch a little something, uh, a movie or a show on uh, Netflix or something tonight before I lay back down in my cozy bed with comforting white noise playing in the background as I drift off to sleep. All right, now, that, it's embarrassing because it sounds so self-indulgent. You know, it's like, who do I think I am? But, but honestly, these are just like the rhythms of our days, are they not? I mean, is your day that much different than these things? I mean, you know, some of you are more disciplined than me. You'll go for a run or something. But even there's pleasure in that, you know, if you're wired that way. I wish I was. <laughs> so we, we're, we constantly, if you think about our days, it's like we jump from one pleasurable experience to another. And, you know, we, we know life, you know, we, we got to work somewhere in there, right? We got to do some hard things somewhere in there. We got to discipline our kids. We got to make money. We, there's things that are not necessarily pleasurable, but we sort of spend our lives jumping from one pleasurable thing to the next. Some of us think about our years as when's the next vacation, right? Going from one pleasurable experience to another. Some of us think about our weeks as how, how many days till the weekend? You know, when can I kick back and relax a little bit? That's sort of the culture that we live in. Now, I happen to think that this, as much of anything else, is a secret, subtle thing in our culture that we're not aware of that's having some damaging spiritual impact on us. Now, is it wrong to be comfortable? Is it wrong to be safe and secure? Is it wrong to have fun and do vacations? By all means, no. We're going to talk today at the end about the redemption of pleasure. But here's the issue. The issue is we can very easily be lulled into thinking that the best things life has to offer are those things that feel good to our senses. And so we just live from one thing to the next. And so we're going to see Solomon dive in wholeheartedly into the pursuit of pleasure as a meaning for life. 
and we're going to see where it gets him. Three parts to today's message. The pursuit of life's pleasures, the end result of life's pleasures, the redemption of life's pleasures. Pay attention. I don't think I've ever heard or preached a sermon on this topic. And this topic in Western culture, 21st century, is eating our lunch. We have to know as Christians how to engage a world full of sensory pleasures in a way that doesn't trap us, but helps give us life. And that's where we're going to get to. All right, so let's start with the pursuit. Verse 1 of chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. And behold, it, was too, it too was futility. Now Solomon's giving the quest and the verdict right in this, this opening. So you know this is not going to end well. It's like, I'm going to go after pleasure. You know it's not going to end well. It's going to be all futility. We talked about that word a couple of weeks ago. It essentially just means it doesn't have substance to it. It's temporal. It doesn't have weight. It doesn't have lasting value. That's what that word uh, futility or, or sometimes translated vanity is all about. Now, he made a conscious choice to pursue a worldview that you and I today would call hedonism. Hedonism sounds so icky, you know, it, it sounds so like uh, sinful, but, but actually hedonism is the foundational pillar for our culture today. Hedonism essentially says, do whatever makes you feel good as long as it doesn't hurt someone else. In other words, hedonism says the highest goal in life is your own personal happiness, comfort, pleasure, fulfillment. Have fun and do no harm. That is the foundational philosophical pillar of our culture. And by the way, if you want to really understand your culture, the first step is you have to realize that you're much more a part of it than you think you are. Right? We can't just critique this from the outside. We're in it. And Solomon's going to kind of lead us uh, down this rabbit hole in this uh, pursuit of hedonism, which we all are kind of in, even subconsciously. You cannot help but be uh, living where we live and living when we live. So we're going to go through all the verses that follow, that track with Solomon through the specific areas that he pursued this hedonistic uh, quest and this journey. And as we walk through, I'm going to take the time to apply each of these to our lives so that we can actually see, hey, Solomon's journey is our journey to some extent. So here we go, um, jumping into the first one, which is in verse 2. So the first thing he's going to pursue is laughter. I said of laughter, quote, it is madness, and of pleasure, quote, what does it accomplish? Now, uh, I don't love the translation from the Hebrew, the word laughter. It doesn't literally mean like comedy, ha-ha, like a funny movie or, you know, a comedy show. So if that's what you're thinking, that's not exactly what it is. What Solomon's getting after here, it's a form of pleasure that's just kind of shallow and base and frivolous. So think about making life a, a just kind of one big joke. Think about just sort of trying to get through life without experiencing pain, just staying up on the surface, not ever going down deep, just sort of go, everything's funny, everything's a joke. You know, it's like get really uncomfortable at a funeral because suddenly you can't make a joke about it anymore, right? Anybody been in that experience before? Our culture is just there. It, it's sort of a, a frivolous, lighthearted approach to Life itself, and if you really dig down under this, it's really a strategy to mute the pain. It's a strategy of self-protection. Um, it is frequent when I'm hanging out with a group of guys or, or other friends, and uh, we're talking about life and talking about sports and you know these kinds of things up here at the surface. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. Great conversation starters, and you know, kicking back and enjoying that conversation. And then somebody will kind of try to take it a little bit deeper by saying something they struggle with, and. Uh, 
I need to start having a, a stopwatch on this. We, we usually can't get through more than 90 seconds of that before somebody will make a joke and, and bring it back up. And I don't think that's unique to me. You know, I'm guilty of that too. I don't think that's unique to my circle of influence. I think that's the culture we're in. It's like someone goes deep, everybody's uncomfortable, and it's like, oh, ha, 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 and then you take it back up. This is what Solomon's saying. He's saying this kind of approach to life is madness. Why does he say madness? The definition of madness is denying reality. So if reality, as Lloyd taught us last week from chapter 1, is that, you know, uh, where's my list? There's something wrong with everything. Something's always missing. We can't do anything to fix it. We're talking about real stuff all of a sudden, and somebody feels the need to just laugh about it, to make it lighthearted. It's a denial of reality, and Solomon's saying it's madness. Well, more we could say about that, but let's keep going. Uh, we got a lot to cover. Verse 3. I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. Uh, Alcohol was one of his first stops on this quest. And it's one of most people's first stops on a quest if they're just going to say, hey, life is about feeling good. Let me um, fill my body with chemicals to, to, again, literally turn the volume down on pain. You know, that's often what gets people into different kinds of addictions. Now, um, Solomon's approach is interesting because he's not just walking around in a drunken stupor. You know, his goal is to stimulate his body, as he says, while my mind was guiding me wisely. So it's an intellectual experiment to see if chemically altering the body could result in a greater meaning or could result in a greater sense of well-being. Now, in that day, alcohol was really the only, um, or at least the primary chemical stimulant that they had access to. Uh, We have a lot more options, right? Uh, Some legal, some illegal. But it's no surprise that in our day, chemical addictions, substance addictions, whether alcohol or other things, are very, very common, right? People are going down the same path as Solomon. But what may start as sort of an experiment, you know, what we've learned about the brain is you, you give it a little bit of a chemical stimulant and it creates a response. Then over time, you have to give it more and more of that stimulant to create the same response. Solomon didn't understand all that. All he knew was he realized chemically altering his body did not result in the kind of meaning that he was, was hoping for. And my guess is in a room this size, a number of you in the room could testify to the same thing. It's like, man, I've been down that path. Uh, trying to just alter my body chemically does not result in meaning. In fact, it actually creates a life of, of, of a shallower, uh, fra- more fragile meaning because an experiment can quickly become an addiction because of the way that our brains work. Um, I can't move on from this without saying this. Some of you in the room are struggling with some type of chemical addiction right now, and I'm not calling you out with any kind of shame, and I'm not layering guilt on you. I'm saying if that's just where you are, I have love and empathy for you and I want life in the worst possible way and and all those who care for you do and so my encouragement would be don't let the shame of that or fear of that uh, keep things hidden find someone in your life that you can trust and just say hey this this is where I am it's hard for me to say this but I need help Uh, if you don't feel like you have someone you can trust I hope that you would risk with one of us on staff you know, we're not going to broadcast your, your trouble. We just want to help in any way that we possibly can. So I want, I want to throw that out. Email me, contact us. We would love to help you however we can. There's a lot more to life than what you're experiencing right now if you're in that uh, very, very difficult cycle of addiction. Okay, we're going to take these next four verses as a block here because they're really all about the same stop 
the third stop, if you will, on Solomon's hedonistic journey. Verses 4 to 7. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Okay, so what's he after here? Right? Well, this is a very interesting section. Think about the topography in Jerusalem. Uh, if you've ever been there, if you haven't been there, you've seen pictures of it. Jerusalem's in the south of Israel. It's kind of in a desert region. Uh, nothing grows there without water, and there are precious few natural water sources. What Solomon literally did was he created an oasis in the desert. He made things grow. He had vineyards and gardens and parks and houses and ponds and forests with irrigation. And then he populated that oasis with people and animals all to serve his every need. Slaves to serve his every need. Animals to serve his every need. Are you hungry? Just go out and, you know, slaughter one. Well, you can't have animals unless you got, you know, things growing, plants for them to eat. You can't have things growing without water, so he irrigated, etc. cetera. Uh, it, was, it was amazing. He used his knowledge, his wisdom that God had given, me to cre- given him, rather, to create this oasis. The Hebrew word in uh, verse 5 that's translated parks into English, you know, don't think about, like, you know, public recreational spaces. The Hebrew word actually comes from the same uh, root. It's a Persian word. We get the word paradise from. So think paradise. I created for myself a paradise. That's literally what he's going after. What he's ultimately doing, this is where it gets fascinating to me, is he's pursuing the same idea that every human after the Garden of Eden has pursued, which is a quest to get back to the garden where everything is fruitful, everything's beautiful, everything is safe, everything is comfortable. What Solomon is doing is recreating his own personal garden of Eden. I don't know if he was theologically conscious of that or not, uh, but think about it. Food, shelter, comfort, beauty, everything designed to feed him, serve him, and most importantly, insulate him from the outer wilderness. That's what a garden is. So Solomon creates this uh, essentially garden of Eden. Um, From Genesis 3, which is when sin came into the world and human beings were expelled from the garden, we've all been trying to get back in, you know, kind of using that uh, symbolically in a way. Like most of us are not out there actually forming a garden. Some of you are, you know, that's the way that you, you know, I I, I appreciate a good garden, although I'm not a gardener. Um, But we have this instinct in us. And so, you know, fast forward from Genesis 3, thousands of years, finally along comes a human being who has the power, the wealth, and the intellect to actually sort of recreate that garden. And he does, in a sense. So would you have. So would have I. How do I know? Because that's what we're all doing right now. Um, All of us, if you think about it, our instinct is basically trying to, to construct our own personal version of paradise. And your vision of it differs from mine a little bit. You know, that's why, you know, you, you, you're trying to save up for the beach house and, and I want the lake house, you know, or whatever. Some of us are mountains, some of us are, are um, beach people. But this is essentially why you find yourself sometimes dreaming of a bigger home, some of us. 
Uh, sometimes you find yourself daydreaming about a property out in the country. Man, if I only had some land. Or, you know, maybe you do have a little property. You wish you had a little more. You wish it was more convenient to this or that or in a different location. Or someday when we retire, maybe we'll do this. Um, this instinct in you is the explanation for your landscaping, your remodeling, your vacation spot, the home theater that you have in your bonus room, um, the, the boat. The, the lake house, the beach house, the RV, all of them are sort of fundamentally your desire to get back to a paradise, get back to what you were made for, insulated from the outer wilderness with as much comfort and enjoyment as you possibly can have. And I don't, I'm not even suggesting you should apologize for the instinct. It, it, do we just have to acknowledge that it's in us? And by the way, this is what the good life is all about. This is what we're all going after. It's human beings. Um, I had a conversation with one of our longtime fellowship uh, members recently, uh, and he was telling, we were talking about our homes, and not talking about spiritual stuff at all, not talking about Ecclesiastes. And we were just saying, man, you know, if there's one thing I could change about my home, what would it be? And, you know, I said, we almost bought a house with a three-car garage, you know, and I kind of, you know, wish we had that. And he was like, oh, man. He goes, I don't wish I had a three-car garage. I wish I had a six-car garage. <laughs> You know, that was his version. It's like, if only I had more space for my toys, you know, that would be my version of paradise. Okay, that was his instinct. I've got the same in mine. Uh, You do in yours as well at big level or small level. By the way, for most people in the world, the degree of their resources is the degree that they're exploiting this desire for paradise, I mean, you know, some of us live in smaller homes. Most people only live in a smaller home because they don't have the resources to build a bigger one or buy the bigger piece of property. Not true with everyone. Um, you know, when I worked for Chick-fil-A a number of years ago, you know, and some of you have read about Truett Cathy, who's the founder of Chick-fil-A. He passed a few years ago, and he and his wife lived, in, you know, up until their deaths in a very small little one-story ranch home. And Truett Cathy was a billionaire. Um, and I went over to his home one time, and I was just amazed. I was like, it was like built in the 1950s, you know, this little ranch home. But he took me out back, and he had like literally a, a, a hanger-size garage where he had about eight dozen classic cars. Yeah, that was Truett's passion. So even Truett Cathy, you know, small home, huge garage, right? So this is kind of how, um, how, how we roll as human beings. Okay. I got to keep moving. Let's keep going. The next stop here is going to be wealth, all right, which goes pretty much hand in hand with the idea of paradise. But this is, this is a little bit of a different take on wealth. Take a look at it. Verse 8. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Now, the key word here is collected, okay? This was not wealth that he was spending. He was collecting it for the sake of collecting it. Like, this is accumulation almost for its own sake. What's the point of excess money? You know, some of you don't have it. Some of you do have it. What's the point of excess money? Well, for most people, it's either security or status. Some of you would sort of shun the idea of status, but, you know, your security, you got to have the money for security. You know, what if something happens or, you know, you're going to have safety, etc. For most people, collecting resources for its own sake, accumulation for its own sake, comes down to security or status. I picture Scrooge McDuck. You guys remember Scrooge McDuck, you know? Uh, cartoon character. He had this whole big, like, like, vat or storage place where he had all his money. And he would, under lock and key, and he would just go in there and swim in it. 
You know, it's like security, status, you know, whatever was driving him. Then we get to the second half of verse 8, and this is, is very interesting. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Let's talk about the singers first. Solomon loved music. Most of us can identify. We live in Music City. I mean, there's something about music that just, you know, brings a lot of joy, brings a lot of pleasure. It's one of God's good gifts. Um, Solomon didn't have recorded sound, obviously. So think about the only way you could enjoy music is if you went to a live performance or maybe you were musically gifted yourself and you know you could sing and enjoy it that way. Uh, I don't know how many songs I have on this little device. I've got a bunch of them stored. I bet most of you have something similar where you have digitally uh, stored music. Solomon didn't have that. So what did he do? He stored live performers in his home and he kept them there so that anytime he could, you know, and you know, entertain friends and say, who do you guys want to hear tonight? You know, it's top 40. Let's get so-and-so, all right? Come on up from the basement. Come on up and sing. You know, this is literally what he was doing. Uh, Then we get to the back half of this. We need to talk about the the concubines. Now, the word many is, is, I I might say, sadly, a bit of an understatement, depending on what your definition of many is. In 1 Kings 11, we learn that he had 300 concubines in addition to his 700 wives. Now, this was, you need to know, if you don't already, in direct violation of God's clear command. And God didn't stop him from doing it. Like God could have given him a, you know, just wiped him out. He just said, no, you're not going down that path. I'm going to wipe you out and I'm going to raise someone else to be king. God chose not to do that with Solomon. For God's reasons, he chose not to do it. I don't know why. Maybe one of the reasons is so we could learn from him how futile this pursuit was but we don't need to sugarcoat it we don't need to to paint it with pastel colors this is sinful and and this is harmful and this is ugly these 1,000 women could not have meant anything more to him than that storage house of silver and gold They were there for status. They were there maybe in his own mind or for others to reinforce his power. They were there for his own uh, uh, lusts to sort of satiate his appetite. Uh, I think there is a contemporary parallel there that I don't want to gloss over. And, you know, at the risk of of making all of us uncomfortable, I need to bring this to us. Um, Think about it this way. Solomon collected these women for his own narcissistic and sexual purposes. And in, in doing this, he robbed them of dignity. He took human beings created in the image of God, and he said, mine. And he used them for his own purposes. Now, this is exactly what happens in our day as well with all kinds of sexual sin. And uh, I actually think some of what's being talked about now culturally, some of that is, is hopeful and helpful that some of this is being talked about. But I want to talk about one thing I don't think is being talked about enough, even because probably because it's uncomfortable. But if we're not going to talk about it in church, where are we going to talk about? I want to draw a parallel to something that's just all over our society and our culture today, which is pornography. Now, some of you are thinking, you cannot compare concubines, 300 concubines, with pornography. And, and they're not this, exactly the same thing. Absolutely not. But, but I want you to think about it this way. What is pornography doing? It's actually denigrating and devaluing human beings by objectifying them as simply something for our consummation, for our, our pleasure to consume, to satisfy a lust, and then you set aside. You, you know, you turn off the screen or you change websites or you delete the files or whatever it is. 
I go there not to, again, layer guilt on all of us, but we have to see more clearly. There is a root sin in Solomon that's causing him to collect all these human beings, objectify them to satiate his own desires. How much different is that from what is all around us in our culture and what many of us struggle with as well? Human sinful nature in us is craving onto things. And sometimes in our strategies for filling the empty, hard places in our lives and in our relationships, which I know is true, sometimes we grab onto things that harm other people. Even when they don't seem to harm other people. Sin does harm. It harms us. It ultimately harms others as well. And this is exactly what was going on with Solomon. Uh, Solomon did not get out scot-free because of this deep, sinful area in his life. Uh, We learn in 1 Kings, when you keep reading, that it was his sexual indulgences that ultimately caused the downfall of his kingdom, of his family, and of his legacy. When Solomon died, the kingdom split. There was a big argument. There was a big civil war. You ended up with southern kingdom, northern kingdom. Northern kingdom gets wiped off the map. doesn't even exist anymore. Southern kingdom ekes on you know, a little bit longer and then gets wiped off the map. There, there, there is no more Israel in the north. You know, Essentially, uh, even to this day to a degree, those people were scattered and gone. Solomon's legacy was devastated by this area of sin in his life. Now, And by the way, the connection, Scripture makes it clear, it was all those wives and all those concubines that led Solomon's heart astray. How many of us, our own hearts, are being led astray with all that stuff? If this is an area of struggle for you, and just statistically, it is for most people in the room, that's just reality, all right? Not calling anybody out. Um, We can't allow this to be unspoken anymore. There's no life in this. And you sort of know, you keep digging and digging and the hole gets bigger and bigger and you never find what you're looking for. There's no life in it. I'll tell you where there is a lot of life in in helping one another take steps toward health. There's a lot of life in that. There's a lot of life to be had in that. So again, if you don't have anyone you can trust, will you trust us to allow us together as a community to help one another with this issue as well? Um, We'll come back to that at some point in time. We need to keep moving through the text. Verses 9 and 10. The next stop. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. This is his quest for fame. This is his quest for a name that will be remembered. My wisdom also stood by me. I think Solomon had some pride in his wisdom, by the way. It was a gift of God, and he had sort of make it, made it a, a part of his identity. Verse 10, all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor. And this was my reward for all my labor. Um, Solomon had it all, and he kind of seemed at least at one point in his life when he wrote this to think maybe he deserved it. This is a reward for all my labor. Did he not forget this was a gift of God? God said, Solomon, what can I give you as you start your, 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 your reign as king after your father David? And Solomon said, Lord, grant me wisdom. And God said, yes, that pleases me, that request. So I'm going to give you wisdom. I'm going to give you all this other stuff too. It was all a gift of God, and Solomon claims it as a reward for his labor. You and I do the same things. Well, the end result of pursuing life's pleasures is in verse 11, and we already know where this is going. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. There was no profit under the sun. 
He uses three phrases, three of his favorite phrases. He combines them all together to give it weight and, and power in what he's saying. All is vanity, striving after the wind, no profit, no gain under the sun. So here's the lesson of Solomon for all of us in a culture awash with pleasures. When it comes to lasting value, when it comes to substance and things that really matter through eternity, none of these pleasures will ultimately move you anywhere. At best, they are a more enjoyable stroll on the treadmill of life. No gain to be had. Um, So what are we to do in light of this reality? All of us in this room have access to more pleasurable experiences than even Solomon did because of advancement in technology and wealth and affluence. and just Even those of you that are the, the, the lowest economically in the room, you still have more pleasurable experiences access to in your life than Solomon ever did. Well, how do we live in this kind of society? Should we ignore life's pleasures? Um, here's a, even a, a more important question. Should we feel guilty? When we experience them, when we enjoy them, here's another important question. How much is too much? Well, this is where I want to go with the, the time I have left, which is, I'm looking at the clock, not a whole lot. Um, but this is very important. We've got to apply this. We've got, we got to get just the learning into the living. So here, here's where we're going to go to this. Uh, Solomon doesn't really answer the question for 21st century. All he, all he says is, this is not ultimately going to get you what you want. Now, later in chapter 2, and Lloyd will cover this next week, but later in chapter 2, he essentially says, you know, down near, near the bottom of chapter 2, he says, look, the best you can do is to enjoy the good things of life that God's given because life is short. All right? And that's actually, there's wisdom in that. In fact, that's inspired by the Spirit. But we know from the entire Scripture, the progressive revelation of God, we can go a little more, we can go beyond that in a way. I want to say it that way. We can actually go beyond Solomon's wisdom because God's given us 66 books of Scripture and he wants to teach us. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, what should be our theology of the pleasures of life? And don't let the word theology scare you. You know, some of you love theology. Some of you are turned off by theology. All I mean is, how are we to think? What, what, what do they have to do with God and what do they have to do with us? So that's the path I want to take you on, and then we're going to apply this in a very practical way. What's God's purpose for pleasure? Let's start with this thought. As God created the creation, Genesis 1 and 2, before sin entered the world, every experience a human being experienced was pleasurable. There was nothing base, there was nothing mundane, there was nothing boring, there was nothing dry, there was nothing tasteless. God created mankind with five senses and he created a beautiful garden, a creation, so that everything was sensory, everything was enjoyable. What was God's purpose in all of this? He designed the pleasures in creation to be enjoyed by human beings. But here's the key. He designed them to be enjoyed with his blessing and in his presence. Those are the two key ideas here. So all the pleasures of life God created designed to be enjoyed with his blessing and in his presence. So think about the, the, what Adam and Eve did when they saw that fruit that God had said, not that one. You can have all these hundreds of other varieties, not that one, because if you eat that one, you're actually going to be expressing your desire for independence apart from me. He gave them just that one. 
that they were not to eat. And so what, what did they do? They were drawn to it, the forbidden fruit. You know, that's even an, an idiom in our day today. They were drawn to it and they partook it because it looked good to their eyes. In fact, Genesis chapter three, it actually says um, it, was, it looked good for food. It looked like it was delight to the eyes. It was desirable to wake one, make one wise. So she took it and ate and gave it to her husband and he ate as well. They consumed something in direct violation of God's command. So they were consuming a pleasure, what looked pleasurable to them, without God's presence and without God's blessing. And that's the fundamental sin. Now, the consequence of sin entering the world is the fallen creation, which Solomon keeps calling life under the sun, life under the sun, life under the sun. All this futility that Solomon is experiencing thousands of years later is the consequence of separating these materially good things from the presence of God and the blessing of God, which is what sin did, which is why all mankind's trying to get back in the garden. They just don't know how to get there. So life under the sun now is characterized by God's creatures just trying to eke out or squeeze out little bits of pleasure, little bits of joy from the shattered pieces of a good creation. And most often we do it in ways that are contrary to how God intended those pleasures to be used. Think about food. God designed food to taste great. And because we're so hungry, both literally and metaphorically, we can't stop eating. So obesity is now rampant all around us. Think about sex. God designed that as something good to be experienced with his blessing and even in his presence in that union of the two becoming one flesh. We're so hungry, metaphorically speaking, inside for intimacy now in the broken creation that we can't stop with the way God has designed it for. We could go on and on and on. Uh, There is a phrase over and over and over again in this passage. I bet some of you caught it as we read the verses. I intentionally didn't mention it because I wanted to come back to it. But look down at your Bible. We won't put it on the screen, but look at your Bible, verse 4, 5, 6, and 8. There's a two-word phrase that comes up over and over and over again in verses 4, 5, 6, and 8. Someone should call it out. Two-word phrase. For myself. I did this for myself. I did that for myself. I did the other for myself. Six times in four verses, he goes out of his way to say, I did all this for himself. God never designed life's pleasures to be selfishly indulged in. God never designed life's pleasures to be sort of consumed to satiate a hunger selfishly. He designed them to be enjoyed in his presence and with his blessing as a communal and a worshipful experience in our relationship with God, as it was in the garden before sin entered the world. And so the only way, and this is going to get into the redemption part and then the application, the only way the pleasures of life can be redeemed, which is our our last point of our sermon here, is if someone could do something about our selfishness, about our craving, about our rebellion, about our sin, who's going to do something about our sin? You know this one, please. I hope you do. Who's going to do something about our sin? Jesus is going to do something about it. You know, has done. I'm putting myself in the perspective of Genesis chapter 3 and Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Who's going to do something about our sin? Jesus. We know the answer. Jesus comes to deal with the sin problem. Interestingly, I don't have time for this, uh, but I got to go there because I introduced it. (laughs) Interestingly, Jesus comes and what does he do? He turns water into wine. What does he do? He 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 goes to celebrations and parties. He never overindulges, but he enjoys the pleasures of life. Community, people, party, food, drink, 
In fact, the Pharisees accused Jesus of being a glutton. He wasn't. But he just enjoyed life a little more than they did. He was able to enjoy it in moderation. He was able to enjoy it worshiping God the way human beings intended to. So Jesus does something about our sin problem by dying on the cross, raising up from the grave. And what he does is he opens up a door to relationship with God, which we now have through faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit indwells us. That's the whole series we just finished a few weeks ago. What does that mean? We, in Christ, can now enjoy life again with God's blessing and in God's presence. Because we have both through Jesus Christ. Do you see how your Christian faith can completely change the way you experience the pleasures of life? So this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to apply this. We need to practice, all right? Um, God's creation. I'm going to throw this out there. It's going to sound a little heretical, and then I'm going to explain how it's not heretical. God's creation is... is um, not primarily spiritual, it's primarily material. God created Genesis 1 and 2, an earth that could be tasted and seen and heard and felt. And in Revelation 21 and 22, we're going to have new heaven, new earth. And on that earth, there's going to be rivers, there's going to be trees, there's going to be fruit, there's going to be food, there's going to be pleasurable things on the new earth, material things. And God has given us five senses that we can enjoy these material things of creation. A redeemed approach to the pleasures is someone who understands their true purpose and is able to engage in them in a way that, that sort of redeems the materialness of God's good creation. So here's what it means uh, for here and now. When you enjoy the pleasures of life the right way, which we'll talk about in just a second, you're actually practicing for your eternal life to come where everything will be pleasure once more. There'll be no more crying, no more tears, no more loneliness, no more pain, no more hunger. Just like Genesis 1 and 2, it'll all be made new. It'll all be restored. Big word of caution for even those of us who are redeemed. We still live on a fallen earth. We still have the battle of our flesh. It is still very easy for us to overindulge in these pleasures. It's still easy for us for them to create more havoc in our lives than actually bring good to our lives. So we must learn to become people who enjoy the pleasures of life in ways that glorify God. Now, how do we do that? Thank you for asking that question. That's how we're going to land. Ushers, go ahead and start passing out what you have. Um, they've been waiting back there patiently, not knowing when I was going to ever get to this. Normally, we pass around the baskets. We're asking you to give something, you know, as a part of your worship. Now we're asking you to take something as a part of your worship. In each of these baskets, you're going to find little bitty uh, morsels of paradise. Hershey's Kisses, okay? Chocolate. Chocolate. Something of, from God's good creation. Now, uh, some of you don't like chocolate, or maybe, you know, if you're allergic and you can't touch it, then, you know, forgive me. But hopefully, even if you just don't like it, just can you take one anyway, and you don't have to eat it or anything. Just hold it in your hand. And, and by the way, n don't unwrap these, okay? Just hang on to them. Um, I, even if you don't like chocolate, I want you to hold this Hershey's Kiss in your hand as a symbol of all the good things in life. What are the things in life that you do enjoy? What's your favorite food? What's your favorite vacation spot? What's your dream for the future? You know, what, what, what are the best things that you enjoy? You know, watching a good movie or going for a run or a boat ride or, you know, going to the beach or vacation. That, that's symbolically what I want you to think of in this Hershey's Kiss. Now, I'm going to teach you 
three steps to enjoying life's pleasures in a way that glorifies God. All right? And I know we're going long on this, but I'm really going to wrap up, and this is very important. Let's put these three steps on the screen, and then uh, I'm going to walk you through them, and we're actually going to practice this together. We'll leave this up for a few minutes, so if you want to take notes or, or take a picture of it, whatever, that's fine. Or email me, and I'll send you all the notes. Um, how to worship God through life's pleasures. Number one, invite God into the experience. Number two, praise him for his good creation. Number three, anticipate the fulfillment that is yet to come. I'm actually suggesting that we do all these three things every time we enjoy food, vacations, uh, anything pleasurable in life, naps. <laughs> um, invite God into the experience. Let's talk about that one. Let that be a guardrail. It's really hard to abuse the pleasures of life if you're conscious of God's presence with you. Now, the reality is you don't have to invite him in because he's there anyway. But I'm talking about a conscious awareness that he's the one that gave this good gift and he wants to be in communion with you as you enjoy it. You know, it's almost like me giving a, a Christmas gift to my daughters and I want to be with them when they unwrap it and when they enjoy it and when they, you know, put the batteries in and start playing with that remote control car or whatever it is. I want to be with them. I want to experience it with them. I want to have the joy of seeing their joy. Invite God into the experience as you eat that burrito, you know, or whatever it is. Uh, number two, praise him for his good creation. In this step, you're recognizing that it came from him and you're using the gift itself as not a way to satiate your own desires, your own hunger, but actually in a way to reflect glory back up to him. Thank you, Father, that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights, James. And then number three, anticipate the fulfillment that is yet to come. And I'm not talking about you're anticipating as you're unwrapping the burrito. I'm talking about as you're eating the burrito and as you're finishing consuming this, you're recognizing that this burrito will never satisfy you fully. The true fulfillment is yet to come in the new earth. You're anticipating that this is an appetizer. The reason that this step is so important is because if you go to the pleasures of life thinking they will fill you now, thinking they will satisfy you, you will never stop eating. You have to anticipate that true fulfillment is yet to come. So if you practice this, I think you'll, it'll become an instinct. You're going on vacation. You're sitting down to a good meal. You're, you're, you're enjoying special time with your family or a good friend, or you're going kayaking on a river. It's like, invite God. God, I, I want you to recognize you're here. You're a part of this. I want to praise you for giving us this good gift. And we're anticipating that as wonderful as this is, it's only a shadow. It's only a foretaste of our true fulfillment. Will you help us, God, not to seek fulfillment? in this. So here's what I need to do. I need a Hershey kiss. Can I, can I grab one from the back? Okay. We're going to enjoy this together. I don't want you to, okay, go ahead. Fine. Now, you know, um, will you, will you grab one for him down here? Cause you need to experience this. Um, go ahead and unwrap this Hershey kiss. This is how we're going to close our service. Okay. We're wrapping this up right now. Or actually we're unwrapping this right now. <laughs> uh, girls, that was a pun. That was a pun. We were talking yesterday about puns. That was one right there. Cool. Um, okay. Now, we are literally going to worship as we experience this. So I want you to stand up. So unwrap your Hershey kiss, stand up. This is how we're going to close our service. Sometimes we worship through a song at the end. We're going to worship through eating. And uh, if you don't like chocolate, then just um, pretend that you're eating something you do like and still practice this with us. But for most of us, we're going to have a taste of heaven in our mouths. All right? So literally, let's bow our heads, close our eyes. Don't put it in your mouth yet. God... We invite you 
to experience this with us because we acknowledge your presence and we recognize that you have given this good gift. Now go ahead and place it in your mouth and start eating it. Hmm. Now eat it slowly. Concentrate. You have at least three of your senses being activated right now. The taste, the smell, the the texture. Those are combining to create the pleasure sensors in your brain firing. Now, how can you experience all that? Only God, because you wired us to experience pleasure and to enjoy it. And so we praise you for that. I praise you for creating that plant that, 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 that was going to be ex- used later to bring about chocolate. I praise you for making human beings with the capacity and the intellect to figure out how to extract that flavor from that plant and refine it and, you know, the sugar that you also made that adds to the pleasure. And I thank you for giving us uh, the capacity to enjoy it. And now, finally, men and women, still in in a spirit of prayer here, Father, we anticipate that chocolate will not satisfy us. It is not a cure for our depression. It is not a cure for our loneliness It is not to be used to satiate our search for meaning. We find our meaning in you, and we will find true pleasure and enjoyment on the earth that is to come. We anticipate that. Thank you for giving us this little glimpse, this little appetizer of what is to come, and we praise you for the pleasures of life. Will you help us to enjoy them in a way that worships you so that we will not be destroyed by our own selves? with the pleasures that you have put on this earth. And I thank you for this body and this congregation. And I pray for them with love and care. And I ask you to bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Go out into a world filled with pleasure, with the five senses God has given you and the Holy Spirit with you so that you can enjoy life according to the blessing of God and according to the presence of God. We'll see you next week.